Welcome to the Twimmel AI Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Charrington. All right, everyone, I am on the line with Tom Dietrich. Tom is a distinguished professor emeritus at Oregon State University. Tom, welcome to the Twimmel AI Podcast. It's nice to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Absolutely. I'm really looking forward to digging into this conversation. I'd love to, before we dive in, get a little bit of your... I'm really looking forward to diving into our conversation, which is going to be focused on a recent blog post that you wrote uh, that was really exploring what it means for a machine to understand. But before we do that, uh, I'd love to learn a little bit about your your background and uh, the context to which you uh, bring to this conversation. Okay, well, I am uh, started out as one of the very first graduate students working in machine learning um, my advisor, Richard Mikowski, was one of the three professors, along with uh, Tom Mitchell and Jaime Carbonell uh, at, at Carnegie Mellon, who launched the, the series of workshops and now conferences, the International Conference on Machine Learning. So back in 1980, there were about 30 of us in a classroom at Carnegie Mellon, and, uh, and I've been working in the field uh, since then. Wow. So over that time, uh, you know, I, I made some technical contributions in ensemble methods and in hierarchical reinforcement learning and, uh, and various applications, for example, in pharmaceuticals. And now I work in applications in um, uh, weather network data and uh, data cleaning, Internet of Things kinds of things. But my primary research focus these days is on uh, reliable, uh, robust artificial intelligence uh, particularly in safety critical uh, applications, so I um, I've done a lot of service activities for the field. I uh, edited the machine learning journal for six years, and uh, then moved into a position as the founding president of the uh, International Machine Learning Society, which is the organization that runs uh, the machine learning conference, the ICML conference. I also chaired the NeurIPS conference uh, in two thousand and. Uh, I served a term as president of the Association for the Advancement of Artificial Intelligence. My main service activity these days is I'm one of the moderators on Archive for Machine Learning, which is uh, between machine learning and computer vision, the two most active categories for for the Archive uh, preprint server. And so I mentioned this uh, in the opening, but we're really digging into this topic of what it means for a machine to understand uh, a recent blog post of yours. And I thought to get things kicked off, I'd read your couple of the opening sentences. You wrote, critics of recent advances in artificial intelligence complain that although these advances have produced remarkable improvements in AI systems, these systems still do not exhibit real, true, or genuine understanding. The use of words like real, true, and genuine imply that understanding is binary. A system either exhibits genuine understanding or it does not. The difficulty with this way of thinking is that human understanding is never complete and perfect. Uh, So certainly the way you've laid that uh, opening argument out, it resonates with me. Uh, I recently had Gary Marcus on the show. This was back in September, and we spoke about the book that he recently launched, Rebooting AI. Uh, and he's pretty, he's very outspoken 
as a critic of deep learning, and maybe that's you know not the way he would put it. Um, maybe he'd say a critic of deep learning, kind of as a standalone path to uh, artificial general intelligence. But you know, in reading the blog post, uh, I couldn't help but think of Gary Marcus as being although you didn't name him kind of the you know person in absentia that you were writing this to maybe talk a little bit about the you know the broader context for uh this post and and maybe how you know what prompted you to write it if you know Gary was part of you know what you were thinking about uh or not I'd love to kind of get a sense for where you were coming from here well certainly you know Gary and I have had uh, uh opportunity even to engage in formal debates and Gary's, as I was saying, I think Gary's main points I generally agree with, which is that there are lots of obvious shortcomings in our existing AI systems, and in particular, uh, these systems based on deep learning. Um, but but Gary and other people can't seem to stop saying things like, well, when we look at uh, the behavior, say, of Google Translate, uh, it's clear that it doesn't have; it's not exhibiting real understanding of the of the language it's translating, or or uh, when we talk about Siri, that Siri isn't doesn't really understand uh, what we're talking about. Um, and I've been making the counter argument: yes, these systems are understanding, and it's real understanding, but it is narrow understanding. And uh, so I I am criticizing the use of the word real to mean deep and complete understanding because that denies that these systems are doing anything that is intelligent or that is exhibiting real understanding. And I think that puts you in the position that you will never be happy with any AI system because no matter how good it gets, it will make mistakes and exhibit failures in its understanding. And are you going to say, well, when it understands 95% of what people say, that it's still not real understanding? I mean, what, you're pushing yourself into a, a belief that there's some magic threshold, that if you could somehow cross it, you would have a system that had real understanding. And I don't think that's the way it works. I think that the way it works is that we make uh, incremental progress, sometimes bigger leaps, sometimes no progress for periods of time, um, as we were doing in speech recognition for, for a while in the 90s. But our systems get better. They uh, are able to understand something. So as I say, when I tell Siri, please call Dan, and it calls the right person, it has understood me for the purposes of that utterance, for that task. Now, if I said, you know, Siri, tell me what Dan means to me, <laughs> uh, and it doesn't really know anything about what it means, say, for uh, to be a best friend. And, uh, right. you know, right. but... Many people, of course, have remarked that it's uh, impossible for two human beings to fully understand each other. So uh, that brings me back again to, well, what is it we're really trying to achieve when we build AI systems? And as an engineer, I would say I want systems that uh, can make the appropriate response when I uh, ask them to do something or if they're warning me of some situation in the world that I should be paying attention to, and so on. And to the extent that they do that correctly, I would say they understand uh, what, what, what I want them to do. Yeah, when we have these kinds of conversations, I think it's, you know, there's a slippery slope of uh, you know, kind of devolving to defining every term in the argument. Um, but 
Uh, in this case, I, I wonder the extent to which we're talking about different types of understanding. Um, do, do you think that that is uh, the case at all here? Well, I don't know that there are different types, but certainly... Or different uh, definitions or Well, I mean, obviously of... we are arguing about definitions. And uh, in my blog post, I, I was supporting the view that instead of arguing about our definitions, we should be trying, to, we should be asking ourselves, well, what tests would you give to a system in order to evaluate whether it's understanding a, a doing a particular type of task well, right? If you say, well, this system uh, is not, is narrow, uh, show me all uh, the, the uh, things that you would like it to do that it is failing to do now. Uh, and I drew, drew the analogy to test-driven development in software engineering, um, write the tests first, and then use those to decide how to engineer the system to try to meet those tests. Uh, and then keep writing more tests. I, uh, and um, I think Gary has actually uh, uh, jumped on that. And on Twitter, he's been uh, asking people, you know, what's wrong with our current natural language understanding tasks? And, and because it seems that we can often get an AI system to do well on the on a particular benchmark task, and yet again, it turns out that it's very narrow and it's not doing well on any like immediately adjacent uh, tasks that we would like it to do. Um, and and so some people have been, there's been a bit of a discussion now about that. And and I think that's really where the discussion needs to go is, uh, you know, and, and Gary himself in, in our Twitter conversations, I thought articulated beautifully, said, okay, I want the computer to be able to say, read a story and tell me uh, the answers to the journalist questions, who, what, when, where, why, how. Uh, so why did this person do this? What did they do? When did they do it? You know, uh, order these events for me correctly in time. And those are way beyond what we can, the, the state of the art in AI and natural language understanding. Some of the people in the natural language community said, just stop using the word understanding at all. We just call it language processing because we know that, uh, that this word understanding uh, uh, sets expectations for something that is very broad and deep. You know, Doug Hofstetter had a very interesting piece that came out last year uh, where he analyzed Google Translate and showed how uh, many, many cases where Google Translate's understanding is clearly extremely surface-oriented. And often it can't understand anything about did, you know, did John do something to Mary? Was Mary doing something to John? It just knows that John and Mary need to both be translated uh, in, into the different language. Um, and it certainly doesn't have any of the uh, you know connotations and uh, depth to say that would be required to to translate more poetic language or metaphorical language. Um, it, it really has no understanding of uh, human uh, social relationships. Uh, what might make Mary angry? What might uh, uh, make John happy? Um, you know, just. It's completely clueless about that because all it has been taught to do is to translate from, say, Chinese into English or English into Chinese uh, for fairly straightforward everyday sentences and certainly not trying to translate Shakespeare uh, at all. And one can imagine that it could make very serious mistakes as a result in, say, uh, highly emotional um, and complex uh, social situations. It's fine for where's the nearest bus stop, but not so good for, you know, 
why, why aren't you talking to me anymore or something? I do want to encourage us to move beyond saying, well, it either understands or it doesn't, and this understanding is true or it isn't, to say, well, this understanding is incomplete in these important ways and, and what we would need these to do. And so, for example, when we think about reading a story or just engaging in a dialogue, we need AI systems that can be building and maintaining an interpretation of the dialogue. And this is well known in the natural language community. We just don't know really how to do it at scale. We can build applications in a narrow domain, uh, say purchasing airline tickets or something, where we can uh, cover a lot of different linguistic phenomena and, uh, and have uh, quite good performance. But as soon as you step out of that narrow domain, that breaks down. Yeah, maybe uh, kind of returning to the you know definition or debate over what understanding itself means. You refer to Searle's Chinese Room argument and a, an article by Cole in your blog. Can you talk a little bit about uh, those? Well, yes. Yeah, so, so uh, there is this famous article uh, in which uh, Searle uh, wrote. Uh, put put forward the sort of following thought experiment, right, which was his Chinese room. So a, a person is in uh, a room, and in this room are, uh, you know, files and files or books and books full of rules that basically say if you are given these Chinese characters as input, you should put produce these Chinese characters as output. Uh, and maybe there are intermediate rules and so on. And there's a human being in there, and what that human being is is essentially like the central processing unit of a computer. It, it takes the input from the outside world, it matches it somehow against all these rules, follows the rules until it produces an output and outputs it. And, and Sura was arguing that, uh, that obviously this room could not, that was not truly or genuinely understanding Chinese, even though to an outside observer, it looked like it was doing just fine. Um, and uh, several people criticized this uh, at the time, it, it, and it has been a, a source of lots of interesting analysis uh, over the years. Um, but, uh, uh, the, but, but one of the main points uh, I would like to link this back to my previous uh, discussion is um, that uh, the, the person inside the box who he, Searle, uh, asserts is just an English-only speaker and doesn't understand any Chinese at all will still not understand any Chinese even though they're executing this computer program. And that's what we should expect. I mean, he doesn't make this point. He, he, he tries to pull out the intuition, you know, why doesn't this human understand Chinese? And, uh, and he even argues, well, suppose the human isn't, wouldn't actually be using books full of rules but had memorized all of these rules. But still, they would just be executing rules and they wouldn't be understanding Chinese. Well, a lot of people then criticize this as saying, well, the, the intuition is somehow that I'm, I'm looking – if the box is the entire system and I'm looking at some subpart of the box like the central processing unit of a computer, um, I'm not going to be able to find a locus of understanding – any and looking at any single component inside the box, it's a sort of system level property that, given uh, inputs, the box produces appropriate outputs, which would be my sort of functional definition of understanding. Um, and that, uh, and I would say that understanding is deeper and broader to the extent that you can ask it a wider and wider of more challenging, deeper questions, and it produces the appropriate responses to those also. 
Um, but we shouldn't expect when we open up, let's say someday we have produced an omni-intelligent system that has broad and deep intelligence, and we open it up, what are we likely to find inside? Well, at some level, we, we might find things we would describe as reasoning and memory and knowledge. And if we go down deeper, we might find pattern matching and, uh, and, and probabilistic uh, you know, random sampling or something. If we go down lower, we're just going to find you know, and and or gates uh, turning on and off. Why should we expect to look inside the box and find uh, intelligence there? It's going to be uh, the, the entire system that, that exhibits this uh, behavior. Just as with us, when we open up our brains, we just see neurons firing and we keep trying to find, well, how does that produce intelligent behavior? Yeah, I think part of this, uh, you know, that, that uh, most recent argument reminds me of my conversation with uh, Greg Brockman of OpenAI, where I think towards the end of that conversation, you know, we posit, I forget whether this was, you know, his perspective or mine or, um, you know, how we arrived at it, but, you know, one way of kind of projecting what AGI might look like is that it's not some single universally intelligent system, but something that looks more like an ensemble of narrower things. Uh, and I think that kind of ties into your functional argument at, uh, in the sense of, you know, at the end, the individual subcomponents of this thing won't necessarily have broad understanding, but they could produce something that, you know, if you look at it functionally, has a broader uh, understanding. Yes, and of course, this has also been a topic of, of long discussion in the AI community. I think researchers in artificial intelligence want to believe that there are some common core mechanisms that apply across a wide range of intelligent behaviors. And certainly, we, one, of, one of the things we, we have a commitment to or have had since the 50s uh, in, in reaction to behaviorism is that there sh should be some sort of mental models or mental representations of the world. Uh, in, and for instance, I'm, I should have a representation somewhere in my head of you and your uh, goals and questions in this conversation, what we've already talked about, what we might talk about, and so on. And, and there's been a, uh, almost, um, almost a reflex reaction against the idea that, uh, that intelligence is just a big switch that given the task, I switch on a different expert in my head, and I just have all these narrow experts. There should be some shared mechanism. On the other hand, you know, when you look at, say, uh, Nobel Prize winners in physics uh, who decide to start uh, talking about artificial intelligence, um, and uh, they, are no, they don't have any deeper insight than any of the rest of us when they move out of their field of expertise— and uh, and 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 this has been established across many different uh, you know fields of expertise is that you know you can be an expert in one thing but you're basically a novice in other things, and yet of course we do see that some people seem to be faster learners than others, and so that argues well maybe there are some shared uh, mechanisms and certainly uh, our perception as we get older maybe we're fooling ourselves is that as we learn more and more about more things we're able to go into a new area and learn faster because we have some frameworks into, that we can plug new knowledge into uh, that help us learn faster. So there's definitely this conflict in, in AI uh, between uh, generality and, and narrow specificity. 
And uh, I don't think it's a big switch that, that just completely switches from one expert to another, but nor do I think that there is some universal module that if we just get that right, uh, we'll be able to learn everything. Um, I, I just I, Because certainly we see in ourselves and in other people that uh, different people have different strengths and weaknesses in terms of the kinds of knowledge they can master, the kinds of skill they can exhibit. Uh, so there's a lot of heterogeneity, and that suggests that there isn't a single, you know, thing like like our heart or our lungs that has the same function across everyone. You know, I, I, you know, there's certainly elements of your argument that that resonate with me, you know, very strongly. The the idea that understanding isn't binary, you know, just makes sense to me. At the same time, when I think about kind of what Gary is reacting to and trying to speak out against, it's kind of this, uh, you know, this hype engine uh, that wants to portray, you know, with intent or not, you know, maybe it's not the, you know, the uh, initiators of the the news that want to intent, but once you put it through the media filter, kind of um, starts to portray this idea that, you know, we're at already, you know, systems that, you know, exhibit some kind of intelligence or that we should be worried about or uh, that, you know, have understanding. Um, you know, I think that's really what he's trying to, you know, put a damper on for the, the benefit of the industry as a whole. And, you know, certainly when I talk to uh, lay people about you know, what's happening in artificial intelligence and, you know, what a Siri really is. There's this, you know, what I most immediately refer to as a misconception that these systems do have understanding, are intelligent. And my immediate reaction uh, is to, you know, try to contextualize that. Uh, and most often I'm saying, no, they're not really they don't really understand. Right. Don't, it seems like the right counterbalance to, uh, you know, you know what the hype right. creates or what uh, just a lack of understanding of what's really happening in these systems, um, you know, conveys. It's, it seems like the right way to kind of guide their their understanding of the degree of understanding of modern AI. Uh, so why do you kind of object to that? Well, I don't object to that. And I, I am 100% with Gary on the trying to dampen down the hype. Uh, I think it uh, it creates those misconceptions that you're talking about. I think it's leading, uh, you know, investors to put money behind things that are not going to work out. Uh, I think that uh, it's, it's uh, also a, an issue of intellectual honesty in the computer science field that as we do research on these things, we need to point out not only the new uh, capabilities that we can create, but also uh, their weaknesses. Uh, and so uh, I totally agree with, with Gary. And, um, and I think Gary would make another point, right, in his argument against a sort of all deep learning approach He's making essentially the the ladder to the moon argument, right, uh, which you may have heard before, which is that, uh, you know, how do we know if our goal is to get to the moon and uh, we can demonstrate that we went from six foot tall ladders to 10 foot tall ladders to 50 foot tall ladders. And we say, look, we're making progress and extrapolate from our ladder technology to claim that it's going to get us to the moon. And it just isn't. And so um, we have to, uh, you know, of course, as researchers and engineers, we 
we place our bets on certain technologies and we want to see how far we can push them. And so in the past, uh, people have placed bets on explicit knowledge representation and reasoning systems where they're hand coding as much of human knowledge as they can. Uh, and now deep learning is placing its bets on uh, you know, deep neural networks and more generally on differentiable programming. Um, and this certainly is uh, gives you a way of writing programs that you can now train in an end-to-end -end fashion, or you can train individual modules and then glue them together with end-to-end fine-tuning. Um, and and there's a feeling uh, among the 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 I'll call it the, the connectionist or deep learning community that uh, that there's still a lot of headroom to go in the things that we could do with this technology. So people are putting in memory and they're connecting this technology to external knowledge sources. Uh, they're doing the meta learning, which allows a, a system that's been trained on uh, some initial tasks to also then very rapidly learn new tasks and transfer their knowledge from one to another. Um, and so um, partly the people inside the deep learning community feel like this is still a productive research a paradigm or research program, which is another, another thing I mentioned in, the, in my blog post, is this idea that if we think about uh, the, the development of science in terms of kind of Thomas Kuhn's analysis in terms of paradigms or this analysis in terms of, um, of, of research programs, that uh, these programs continue until they cease to be um, productive and fruitful. And, uh, you know, Gary, is, on the one hand, is arguing, well, there are all these things that deep learning systems, today's deep learning systems cannot do, and that he doesn't see how they're ever going to do. And, and so he's arguing, well, we, we, we know we have these other systems, these symbolic reasoning systems that can do some of these other things. So the obvious path forward is to build hybrid systems that combine both symbolic and connectionist components. But the, I would say the, the connectionist uh, deep learning reply to that is, well, we're going to keep pushing because we see that our methods are, are still fruitful and giving us new capabilities. We're going to keep pushing on them. And we'll we want to maintain an open mind. I mean, maybe we can't reach the moon with only connectionist ladders, um, but but maybe we can build rocket ships out of connectionist uh, material, and maybe we can get there. And so, of course, the connectionists have, from for decades, criticized uh, symbolic systems for their inability to capture nuances and similarities, and uh, because they're very uh, symbolic and and boolean. Um, and I don't think we have a good that the that the symbolic community has a a good response to to that criticism. So both methods have their weaknesses. And maybe I mean, if I were building a system today, uh, I would build a hybrid system. And certainly, if you look at the successful AI systems out there, like let's look at Google Search or Bing, these uh, systems are are hybrids of deep learning and symbolic uh, reasoning systems. They are also collections of experts uh, so that an incoming question is routed to multiple sub-query engines that say, well, is this a question about stock prices? Is this a question about a product for sale? Is this a question about geography? Right, and so on. Then the candidate answers bubble up and are ranked and assessed, and then uh, one or more of them are displayed to the user. Um, and so these are certainly, if you look at what is the state of the art in terms of actual practical systems, they are all hybrid systems. It strikes me that the critique of deep learning 
isn't going to get us to AGI is similar to, uh, or there's a maybe an adjacent critique uh, that kind of touches on your your own area of research into robust and safe AI that kind of says that you know a lot of the the research in that area kind of presupposes uh, some super intelligence. Uh, a la Nick Bostrom, and we're nowhere near there. We have no idea how we're going to get there, and, and therefore, how useful really is that whole line of, of reasoning? It is it is kind of that the the parallel, you know, critique there uh, part of what you're responding to, or in what ways do do you see that playing out? Well, so my interest in robust AI is uh, much more immediate than than Bostrom's paperclip maker or any of those things. Uh, okay. I I I think those are all fantasies, basically. But we have very re- very practical issues confronting us right now, because all of the AI systems that we build today are limited to fairly closed worlds. I mean, I I guess I, I'd have to say the. Google search engine is much more open, but it but it has a fallback, which is to just go and do a search of the web and try to find matching documents. So if it can't understand something, that's kind of what it falls back on, just like Siri does, right? Mm-hmm. But when we think about, say, a self-driving car uh, and we train it uh, to recognize basketballs bouncing in, across the street, children on bicycles and tricycles and dogs and deer and what have you, but there, there's always the possibility that something new, there'll be some new kind of obstacle that the car hadn't seen before. And so I used to use the made-up example, well, suppose we train the system in North America, but then we deploy it in Australia. What does it do the first time it sees a kangaroo? It turned out that was actually ha- was a real case. Um, <laughs> sure. Uh, and, and the kangaroos were confusing some of these self-driving car systems that had been engineered in Europe um, and then were, were being uh, tested in Australia. So this is n- known as kind of the open world problem or the open category problem. That there's some new kinds of objects out there. And our machine learning systems, say for supervised learning, right, are trained on some fixed set of categories. So uh, the most famous benchmark, uh, which is ImageNet, has 1,000 categories of objects, and, and, and uh, it's trained to, to discriminate among those 1,000 categories. So it basically assumes every new image it sees contains one of those uh, objects from one of those 1,000 categories. And so if there's something new there, it will just classify it as one of the 1,000 things it knows about. Um, so if it hadn't been trained on kangaroos, maybe it classifies it as a rabbit or something. Um, maybe it's confused about the scale. I don't know. Or a deer. Who knows what kind of mistake it might make. Um, maybe because of the way it moves, it, it classifies it as a paper bag blowing across the road. Um, and in that case, the automatic car might make a, a, a mistake and, and not brake uh, to stop for it. So... I'm interested in this question of can we build systems that can work in open environments? Uh, Can we get probability estimates, confidence estimates out of the system that we can trust in open worlds and in closed worlds too? So if we think about, you know, there's been a lot of discussion of face recognition and these face recognition systems, and uh, it's uh, well established that they are not equally accurate on all people, right, and particularly black people. Uh, and darker-skinned people, the systems don't are not nearly as accurate on, and particularly 
black women are very inaccurate on these, uh, and um, and and partly that is because they're un- the uh, images of black people are underrepresented in the training data. But they are also just a minority of the population. So if you belong to a subpopulation that is a tiny minority, machine learning systems tend to go for the common case, and they tend to be less accurate on the edge cases. Uh, you know, you can say, well, I'm 98% accurate. It's just that every one of my mistakes turns out to be a black woman. Um, and so if you're a black woman, you're really going to have problems with these face recognition systems. Um, and, I, you know, this has been really uh, called to attention, I think, uh, really nicely by Joy Blumwini at MIT and Timnit Gebru, um, who I think is still with Google, uh, and, I th- and, and their collaborators. And uh, I want these systems to be able to give confidence scores that say, well, when I see uh, an image of a black woman, I have a confidence score that is very low. Um, so that we know not to trust these systems in these situations. Uh, same for the self-driving car, same for, say, uh, using computer vision in medicine, uh, in reading x-rays and so on. We need systems that can give us confidence numbers that, that we can trust. The computer vision system that, that Amazon sells for face recognition gives confidence numbers, but they don't tell you what they mean. Um, and uh, and and in any case, you would need to uh, calibrate your confidence numbers to the data you're using the model on, which is different from the data it was trained on. And so that's one of the things I'm studying in my work. Yeah, I think at the at the end of the day, it strikes me that you know what what Gary's saying is, hey, you know, we we're calling these systems intelligent, talking about their understanding, but at AGI, deep learning you know, almost certainly isn't going to get us to AGI by itself, which is kind of the benchmark of, quote unquote, you know, capital I intelligence, capital U understanding. At the same time, what you're saying is, uh, hey, let's not throw the baby out with the bathwater. There's still significant value in deep learning as well. And also, uh, a lot of room for additional research and exploration and uncovering future value there. And, it, you know, it sounds like both of these are correct. Both of these are are great and and, and right perspectives to take. It, it, do you agree with that? Or, well, you know, I, there, I mean, where's I'm, the... <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not willing to say, oh, well, you know, uh, deep learning style technology can't get us to, say, broad, broadly intelligent systems. I don't like the term AGI because it's an undefined term. But uh, so I, I, I'm, I, I think we should continue to uh, push in that direction with our deep learning systems. Um, but, uh, but we obviously uh, should not be declaring victory prematurely. And we do get a lot of press releases out of companies and out of academic labs um, that that exaggerate the significance of the work, uh, and and uh, you know maybe they don't explicitly say it, but they are open to the misinterpretation that 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 uh, you know uh, broad uh, omni intelligent systems are right around the corner when when in fact of course we are nowhere near uh, having those. Yeah, yeah and I should be clear. Uh, Gary's perspective is that. 
uh, deep learning as a style of computation won't get us there, and it needs to be supplemented by uh, symbolic computing and or other techniques. Uh, my personal view is that uh, you know there's some discontinuous uh, innovation that's going to be required. Uh, to get us there. Deep learning may be a big part of it, but there's something else, and we don't really know what that something else is. It may be some other style of compute uh, that, you know, quantum computing, you know, heaven forbid, or, or something else that allows us to, you know, to, to far surpass where we are today. Um, but I don't think we know what that is uh, today. And, you know, it's certainly... Yeah, it's I a very safe the, bet. It's a very safe bet that we're going to need more innovation, discontinuous innovation, as you say. Exactly, exactly, exactly. And then, uh, you know, but also there, there's, you know, it's very clear that we're just at the beginning of unlocking the the value that uh, deep learning uh, offers to uh, society, and that you know there's more work to be done, and that we should be doing that work. Yes. Uh, I think we could continue this discussion uh, for quite some time, but I think we've covered a lot of good ground and it was uh, great checking with you on uh, your perspective on this. And I really appreciated the the blog post, Tom. Well, thank you very much. It's always uh, fun to talk about these, these uh, challenging questions in artificial intelligence. Awesome. Thanks so much. All right, everyone, that's our show for today. To learn more about today's guest or the topics mentioned in this interview, visit twimmelai.com. Of course, if you like what you hear on the podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review the show on your favorite podcatcher. Thanks so much for listening and catch you next time.